Good morning, gardeners. Welcome to the very first podcast of the Garden Club of South Carolina. I'm Tricia Bender, the third vice president of the Garden Club of South Carolina and the Charleston Gardening Examiner. And we have a very special guest here today, Dr. Douglas Ptolemy. Doug Ptolemy is a professor of the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware. He has authored over 84 research publications and has taught for over 34 years in the field of insect taxonomy, behavioral ecology, humans and nature, that sounds very interesting, insect ecology, and other courses. Doug has concentrated his research to better understand the many ways that insects interact with plants and how these interrelationships determine the diversity of our animal and plant communities. His book, Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Own Gardens, was published by Timber Press in 2007 and was awarded the 2008 Silver Medal by the Garden Writers Association. His latest book, co-authored with Rick Dark, The Living Landscape, published in 2014, helps us bridge that gap between discovering the theories that Doug will be talking about today and implementing them in our own urban landscapes. Welcome, Doug. Uh, pleasure to be here, Trish. We have lots of questions here in South Carolina. And let me just say that we are very honored that you're going to be appearing um, live for the Garden Club of South Carolina on April 28th, presenting your talk, A Chickadee's Guide to Gardening. You have actually set in motion a movement that has swept through South Carolina like wildfire. And it's just so exciting to be talking with you about how you came up with your theories and how we as South Carolina gardeners can maybe implement some of those things. So let me start by asking you, why native plants? Uh, okay. We need to put native plants back into our landscapes for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have removed most of them. In a typical landscape these days, 80% of the plants are from Asia. And the reason that's a problem is that uh, plants are the basis of our food webs. All of the energy that other animals get come from plants that they have, they have harnessed from the sun, turned into food. Uh, and native plants are just much better at passing that along to other, other creatures than our plants from someplace else. Uh, and that's because plants really don't want to be eaten. They capture the energy from the sun and they want to use it for their own growth and reproduction. So they defend their tissues with, with chemicals, secondary metabolic compounds that are not tasty, and sometimes they're downright toxic. So in order to get that energy from plants, the things that eat plants have to be able to get around those chemical defenses. And local animals are much better at doing that because they have interacted with our native plants for you know, millions of years. When you bring in a plant from Asia, they've never seen it before. The chemicals are different, and they are unable to eat it. And then that's at that end. That's the end of, of that energy pathway, and nothing can be supported by those plants. 
in your book, Bringing Nature Home, you introduced many gardeners to something that I don't think anybody had ever heard before. Um, In fact, it was new to me, and that is that many of our um, caterpillars and um, moth larvae are very plant-specific. Can you expound on that? Uh, Yeah, about 90% of the species of, of insects that eat plants, and this is particularly true for caterpillars are what we call host plant specialists. Uh, and that is that in their effort to, to circumvent these, these chemical defenses, um, they have focused on one or two plant lineages that share a common cocktail of, of chemical defenses. And that enables them Can to you give me an example of that, Doug? Uh, sure, something like uh, black cherry. Black cherry, uh, there's a, okay. There's a caterpillar called the dowdy pinion. And not only does it only feed on black cherry, it only feeds on young black cherry leaves. If you give it an older leaf, it will die. So that level of specificity is required because they have to develop particular enzymes and behaviors and life histories that get around those particular chemicals. And it's different for each plant lineage. It's, it's very hard to come up with these adaptations. So very few insects are able to do it for a lot of plants. It's much easier to focus on, on one or two plants. I talk about just lineages, things like a genus or sometimes even a family that are sharing uh, defenses. Uh, and, and then they're able to, to eat those compounds without dying. I often use the juniper hair streak as, a, as another example. Red cedar defends itself with, with uh, a very toxic compound, a monoterpene called beta-thuyaplixin. Uh, and very few insects can eat this, even though red cedars have been in our landscapes for many millions of years. But the juniper hair streak is a specialist on red cedar. It can eat beta-thuyaplixin without dying. And that's the, that's the upside of specialization. But there is a downside, too, and that is that in developing the adaptations to get around the defenses of red cedar, Juniper hair streaks have not developed the adaptations that allow it to eat anything else. And that means if we don't have red cedar in the landscapes, we lose that butterfly. And that gets back I to see. why it's not so good to have plants from Asia because then we're going to lose all the native, native creatures. So can you explain the difference between a native plant and a non-native plant specifically in their role in our gardens Um, and their importance in our gardens. First of all, let's define what a native plant is. It is one that has has had a background, an evolutionary background in the food web that you're talking about. So if if we live in in South Carolina, Plants that have been in South Carolina long enough for insects to adapt to their defenses would be considered native. But that takes a long time. We're talking about tens of thousands of years. So even though some of the plants from Asia have have been here for over 100 years, it's not nearly long enough for, for our insects to adapt to them. So the role of these native plants in our gardens uh, is that they allow other things to, to live in our neighborhood. 
if we're only using plants from someplace else, outside of local food webs, that's what a non-native plant would be, then you're not, you're not producing those caterpillars that birds need to reproduce, for example. Uh, and this is, this is something people don't appreciate. It takes thousands and thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of, of, of birds. Chickadees, for example, six to 9,000 caterpillars to produce one clutch of chickadees, and that's just to the point where they leave the nest, and then they continue to eat caterpillars. So if you have, if you have calorie pear or, or golden rain tree or camellias or other things in your yard that aren't producing hardly any caterpillars, there's no way you can have breeding birds in your yard. So that's what the role, the role would be. It's to help other things um, share our spaces. And, you know, in the old days, there was so much nature left out there and so few humans. We could do whatever we wanted with our yards, and it didn't really matter. But now, we're everywhere. It's either our agriculture or our cities or our suburbs, uh, and there's very, very few. We've got these little patches of nature. It's not nearly enough to maintain the populations of, of uh, the creatures that run the ecosystems that support us. So we have to start considering our our yards, our neighborhoods, as important parts of local ecosystems. I talk about raising the bar about what we want our yards to do. In the past, we've asked them to be pretty, and we're good at that, and we want to continue to do that. But now we want them to be pretty. We also want them to support food webs so we have some biodiversity in our neighborhoods. We want them to manage our watersheds. Uh, we want them to sequester carbon. We want them to enrich the soil, to support pollinators. These are all things that used to happen in nature, but if there's not enough nature anymore, they've got to happen right at home. So that's the, new, that's the new landscape design challenge. How do we design landscapes that can do all that and still remain aesthetically attractive? So, Lawrence, I understand what you're saying about creating a, an urban landscape environment which mimics what used to be here maybe 100,000 years ago so that we can invite the birds and the butterflies and the bees to come back and use our yards like they used to use native landscapes. Is that correct? That's correct, but it wasn't 100,000 years ago. It was, it was, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. So man has made that much of an impact on the urban yeah. landscape yeah. that it's so the first thing essential we, that we do this. Right. The first thing we tend to do is, is take a lot of the plants away. For example, we put in our big, big expansive lawns. Well, you know, grass is a plant, but it's a tiny fraction of the of the plant material in that space compared to what used to be there. And we have we have 45.6 million acres of grass in the U.S. right now, and we're adding 500 square miles a year. Um, wow! Well, all those things I I listed, you know, sequestering carbon and supporting pollinators and blah blah blah. Uh, grass doesn't do any of that, <laughs> so it's attractive, but but uh, compared to what it could be, it's essentially a dead landscape. So we've got the choice. We can, we can turn the U.S. into a dead landscape, or, or we can actually share it with some living things. And, and it's, it's not a real choice, because if we do go the route of, 
of creating dead landscapes, we ourselves won't be around for very long because we absolutely, we depend on functioning ecosystems now as much as, as ever before. Actually more because there are so many humans now. So we can't afford to, to waste land just uh, in, in attractive ways. We've got to make them productive and attractive. Okay. All right. I've heard it said that some native plants are actually considered invasive. Can you explain that a little bit? Okay. That's, that's incorrect. <laughs> oh, what, okay. What, what, you, what people mean when they say that is that some native plants are aggressive uh, and that they will spread, and that is true. But the definition of an, of an invasive species, first of all, you have to be non-native. You've got to be a plant from someplace else that displaces native plants. So a native plant belongs there, and even if it's aggressive and spreads, uh, it does not fit the real definition of, in, of invasive. Um, so sure, there are, there are aggressive native plants, things like Canada goldenrod, very, very aggressive. Our native grapes, uh, when we give them uh, light, and we do all, we, everything is a light gap now. They'll climb up trees, and, and uh, they can pull them down in an ice storm. Uh, so it's really, it's really semantics. It's whether we're talking about something that, that uh, moves on its own rapidly versus something that does that, but it, but it doesn't belong there. That's the key. If it doesn't belong there and it's removing native plants, then the ecosystem suffers. If you replace one native plant with another one, uh, there's very little impact. What do you say to the gardener then that says, well, in South Carolina, we're known for our beautiful Formosan azaleas and our camellias, and I want a little bit of lawn. Is there a way to achieve a balance and still achieve our goal of bringing right. back native plants? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, you don't have to have a 100% native landscape to, to restore ecosystem function to your yard. You can have your lawn, you can have your camellias. Typically, I talk about cutting the area of lawn in half. Lawn should okay. be used to, it's the perfect plant to walk on, and it can guide you through your landscapes. So you can actually appreciate something that's out, outdoors. So any place you walk normally, that's where the lawn should go. But does it have to be acres and acres of lawn with nothing else? No, it, it doesn't. Um, can you have your camellias? Can you have your your Crepe myrtles, yeah, but when it's 80% of the plants that's in your landscape, then it, that's not a balance. That's going in the other direction, and there's very little uh, that, that will exist there. We are finding out, our latest research shows, that there are a few genera of native plants. I'm going to call them essential. They're, they're so important in producing food for food webs that if you don't have those few genera, uh, you don't have a viable food web, even if you have dozens of other native genera. So things like oaks, things like prunus and willows and pines, we call these foraging hubs because they support so many of those caterpillars that drive those food webs. So if you had a yard that did have a very nice oak uh, and did have a, a uh, you know an American plum or a pine or You'd have plenty of, of room for other plants that could be accents, you know, could be beautiful places for your eye to focus, 
and you would not lose the, the ecosystem function that I'm talking about. And we're lucky. Oaks are the most productive plant we can put in our yards, and we're lucky that that they also do a lot of other things. They're crucial for watershed management. They sequester tons and tons of, of uh, carbon. Um, so they're doing lots of things in addition to supporting those food webs. But remember, another goal of your yard is to support pollinators these days. And there's no one plant that does all of these things. So you have to, you have to think, what am I going to have that's blooming from early spring right through mid-fall so that I can have important uh, or, or um, diverse communities of pollinators in my yard. You can't go a period of, of uh, two or three weeks with nothing blooming in your yard and expect to keep those pollinators because they need, they need pollen and nectar the whole summer. Uh, so that's, that's a different challenge. And that gives us, you know, there's a lot of leeway there. There's so many blooming plants. You can create a lot of beauty when you're making your pollinator garden. One of the things that I wanted to touch back on was something in your first book, Bringing Nature Home, which I find as a personal gardener to be very effective, and that is that you rank trees and plants not just by their ease of growing or their beauty, but by how well they support specifically, specifically the Lepidoptera species. And I'm seeing that, for example, the oak, the coarsest genus, can support over 534 different species of just butterflies and moths. Is that correct? Right. Actually, we're up to 557 now. <laughs> wow. I'll have to make a mark in my book. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's why I say they're the, they're the most productive um, because so many species depend on them. Then, then our, our native cherries, 456, native willows, 455. And let's compare that to, to something like ginkgo, ginkgo biloba from Asia. A lot of people are planting it. Beautiful tree. Um, beautiful tree. But there are only four records of caterpillars eating ginkgo, and all of those are mistakes. <laughs> so, wow. So it, it really supports essentially nothing. Another tree that we're using a lot of street trees, Zelkova from Asia. Zero mm -hmm. caterpillars can eat that. So you could put a silk Zelkova or a plastic one out there, and it would do the same thing <laughs> that, that the living <laughs> one does in terms of supporting other, other uh, creatures. So that's what I'm talking about. There are just huge differences. But another important point to make here that, uh, is that there are huge differences among natives, too. So, for example, if you compare oaks to yellowwood, which is a native, native tree, there, there are no records of caterpillars on, on yellowwood. On the other hand, yellowwood is a very important tree for pollinators in the spring when it's blooming. So you want to look at the, at the community of plants in your yard and, and think about, you know, what's this one doing, what's this one doing, and come up with a balance so that you can accomplish all those goals we talked about earlier. Let me, so let me it's touch not just about going – go ahead. Let me touch on pollinators again. Um, they're politically correct these days. You know, now, now it's, everybody's recognized their pollinators are declining and we're all supposed to save them, and, and that's good. They that's a step forward. Mm -hmm. But most people are 
don't appreciate how important it is. If I say, why do we need pollinators? The typical uh, person would say, because they pollinate our crops. So it's a very anthropocentric uh, response. And, and yes, they pollinate a third of our crops. And yes, we do need them for that. But they also In other words, eight. no bees, no almonds, right? No yeah. bees, no, no, right. okay, no strawberries. Well, I see. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you could get out there with a paintbrush and pollinate them yourself. And that's what people in China are doing because their pollution is so bad. Most of their pollinators are gone. Oh, that's tragic. But that's, a, that's actually a minor part of what pollinators do. They pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. So if we actually lost our pollinators, we would lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And that's not an option. I mean, that would be ecological disaster. <laughs> so, so they're crucial in, in keeping the plants on the planet here. And that's the major reason. We've got to keep those, those plants around. And to do that, we've got to keep the pollinators around. And to do that, we have to have them in our yards. And when we talk about pollinators, I think a lot of gardeners, particularly new gardeners, are under this misconception that you only plant the pretty flowering things and that you miss providing a host plant or a host environment that would also nurture all of the insect species. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Uh, when people think about pollinators, they're typically thinking about, well, they have to think about the honeybee, which is a, a non-native pollinator. But we also have 4,000 species of native bees, uh, which all of the pollination in North America was done by those, well, not, all of the bee pollination was done by those native bees before we brought over the honeybee. But we also have other things that pollinate. Um, like those, those moths and butterflies, there are 14,000 species of moths and butterflies in the U.S. Now, they're, not, they're typically not as efficient in pollinating as our bees, but they do do a lot of pollinating, particularly at night. You go out to your flowers huh. at night, like milkweed. Look at milkweed at night. It actually becomes, um, it releases its scent uh, more at night than during the day, and it's loaded with, with nighttime pollinators, typically moths. So if we, if we didn't have the host plants that created those moths, we would lose all of their pollinating services. <laughs> We're learning that in order to keep our pollinators around, particularly our bees, we want to plant for the bee specialist. Just like those caterpillars that need particular plants, there are bees that need particular plants. They have learned, well, they... <laughs> Through the ages, they have become specialized at pollinating particular plants. And if those plants disappear, so do the pollinators. So, for example, in New England, there are 13 species of bees that will only pollinate goldenrod. So if you take away the goldenrod, you've lost 13 species of bees right there. There are 11. So it's not just caterpillars that are species-specific? Right. Bees can be species-specific? Okay. That's right. But there are, there are many generalist bees, too. So we're learning that if you plant for the specialist, the generalist will be able to use those plants as well. Uh, and that's a healthy way to look at it. Uh, and that's true for, for the caterpillars, too. You know, 90% are specialists, but 10% are generalists. So if you plant for the specialist, the 10% will be able to use those, those plants as well. 
let's talk a little bit about the specialists for a minute and with regard to native plants. One of the big questions among our native plant gardeners in South Carolina is, okay, we want to go native and we want, for example, let's take the milkweed. I can't get a hold of Asclepius tuberosa, which is our native, but I can get the Mexican or the Texas milkweed. Or I might even be able to get a hybridized variety of Asclepius. I believe there, or maybe another variety, I think you call them con congeners maybe? Are right. they just as good as our native Asclepius? Um, okay, <laughs> you got a couple of questions in here. Um, I think you're talking about cultivars, uh, which are which are not hybrids. Hybrids is a cross between two different species, uh, and you know we go to the nursery, and so many of the native plants that we find there are are cultivars. They're a genetic variant of the straight species. Now, some of those cultivars are found in nature, and for example, a red maple that has particularly red leaves in the fall could be called red maple, red maple October glory. It's a natural variant. Um, there's no reason to suspect that that would not be as good as, as um, any other red maple at supporting wildlife. But we also select, um, you know, we, we put them through plant breeding programs to try to select for particular traits. And we often do this with flowers. We want to make the petals bigger. Um, a lot of times we create double flowers. That's taking the reproductive parts of the flowers and turning them into petals. Well, when you do that, that uh, eliminates nectar production and pollen production. So in terms of, of uh, meeting the needs of, of pollinators, that goes from a productive plant to, to zero. Things like So in other uh, words, they might be pretty, but they're functionally Exactly, useful. right. I Our, see. Cultivars have all been selected to uh, enhance particular aesthetic traits. Nobody's been looking at, at uh, creating cultivars that actually enhance function. So we could create an echinacea, for example, that has twice the nectar load. You could call it echinacea nectar plenty, and it would be loaded with butterflies. Uh, but we haven't thought of, of, of doing that uh, because it's always been about how pretty can it be. And also, it's, you know, it's trendy. Plant breeders and nurserymen think that if we don't have a different cultivar every year, people won't come in and, and buy the plants anymore. Uh, because we've fallen into this trap to thinking that plants are only decorations and we always want new decorations. And that's because they're beautiful. They are decorations. But if we start mm -hmm. thinking more in terms of function, um, I would like to see the, the cultivars or the straight species sold right alongside of the cultivar. So people who, who really want to maximize the benefits to wildlife have the option of doing that. Right now, if you go in and there's nothing but, but cultivars available, it's, it's difficult to do that. Another problem I have with, with cultivars is that they're often propagated clonally in order to, to retain that trait. And that means there's no genetic variation in, in that cultivar. So when we, we plant it out there, there's zero genetic variation. And we know that that's not a good idea. You get a single disease come along and it wipes out all of them because of the lack of genetic variation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything against cultivars. I just would like to see the straight species offered for sale. And sometimes the, the, um, the trait we select for doesn't seem to make a difference. We're, we're doing research on this right now. What do you mean by we that? We find that, uh, I mean that if you take a tall plant and you make it short, um, that's not changing the leaf chemistry at all. So, for example, the caterpillars that ate the tall plant will eat the short one, too. They don't seem to care okay. that it's been selected for that. We're finding that introducing disease resistance, so for example, for the American elm or the, the uh, American chestnut, that doesn't seem to, to hurt the, the caterpillars either. So it's not that all cultivar changes are bad. Uh, it's... It's just that um, they are typically produced clonally, and that's not, not so great. We know the straight species works really well, so why not offer that for sale uh, as, uh, right alongside of those cultivars? Great idea. Wouldn't it also be wonderful to have a little tag on each plant <laughs> that tells them how well it supports the specific that insects that you're talking about? Wouldn't that be great, yeah. an insect ranking system? Yeah, kind of like the calorie count on your hamburger. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we've got some educating to do because would would say this supports a lot of insects. I don't want it. <laughs> you know, we right because they don't want bugs in their yard. Free. Yeah, we want no insects. But it's really it's insects that drive the world. E.O. Wilson wrote a paper years ago called "The Little Things That Run the World," uh, and and he pointed out if insects were to disappear humans would disappear within a month. I mean, ecosystems would collapse because they do so many crucial things. So whether or not we like insects, they're absolutely necessary to our well-being. And even if you don't like insects per se, a lot of people like birds. A lot of people have bird feeders out there. If you think of your plants as bird feeders and you think of insects as bird food, don't call them little worms or ugly insects. Just say, here's bird food. Then it's not so bad. We, you know, we get it. We got to feed the birds. So, right, right. Rudy Mankey here in South Carolina has a wonderful philosophy that, you know, the the plant turns the sun into plant, and the caterpillar turns the plant into caterpillar, and the bird turns the caterpillar into more birds. So, right. it's it's a fun way of approaching gardening, in that natural recycling food chain process. Absolutely. Let's go back to talk a little bit about native plants then. You know, the term native plant can be very confusing to a new gardener because what I've learned is that it doesn't mean that it's native to my yard or native to my city or even my region. Help us understand that. Well, again, uh, my definition of native is that it belongs to your local food web. But food webs can be huge. So, for example, if I'm a caterpillar and I am a specialist on American beech, American beech grows from Canada down to Florida over to the Mississippi and even beyond. It's got a huge range. And I'm a caterpillar. I can eat beeches from anywhere in that area. So that's, that's the area of the food web in, that involves beaches. But it doesn't have to be a beach 
that grew in your yard or down the street. You are more constrained by the provenance of the seed that produces the plant than you are by the size of the food web. So for example, if I take a beech seed from Florida and try to grow it in my yard in Pennsylvania, it'll grow fine until for the winter time, <laughs> until it leaves right. out in the spring three weeks early and then gets killed by uh, a late frost. Um, so that's, that's, you've got to get a genetic uh, or a genotype of the plant that is appropriate for your area. So that's much more restrictive than, than the food web that you're trying to match. So it's really not that hard to come up with native plants. On the other hand, if you take Colorado blue spruce that evolved in the Colorado Rockies and you plant it in South Carolina, it does fine, uh, but that's so far removed from its, its uh, native food web that it's not contributing to anything. And then, of course, it's, it's very obvious when you take a plant from Beijing and you plant it in, in South Carolina, it's, it's not going to contribute at all. It could be pretty, but uh, it's, it's, its food web is, is you know, 15,000 miles away, and, and you're not going to be able to uh, not going to support anything from China in your yard. And I think that one of the best ways that our local gardeners have found in obtaining local specific native plants for our region is by going to things like the native plant sales. And we have a wonderful um, native plant society in South Carolina, as do many states that have routine sales and have actually started nurseries and mm -hmm. um, local systems by which we can share and swap and even rescue plants from areas that are being developed so that they right. don't disappear. Yes, well, all of that is true. But you know, you can go to your favorite nursery and you can say, I would like this particular plant. And if they say, well, we don't carry that, I say, can you get it for me? Mm -hmm. um, they may or they may not, but if they hear the request enough, they will start to carry it. Remember, nurserymen are not working for Chinese plants. They simply <laughs> want to sell a plant. And if they realize there's a market for native plants out there, they will carry them. They will carry them. We will come up with the economy of scale in producing them so that their, their prices drop. It's just that there hasn't been a demand in the past 100 years. And that's why they're not in the market as much as, as uh, plants from someplace else. Good thought. So we can actually drive the supply. Absolutely. By requesting Absolutely. it from our local retailers and our local wholesalers. Mm -hmm. So how do we affect the change on the landscape community? Because I know here particularly we have lots of landscape schools and they're still teaching the most pest resistant, beautiful, easy growing landscape formula. Right. Um, you know, we're talking about changing our culture, the, the culture of, of uh, landscaping. And cultural changes are hard. They, they, uh, they take time. I've been talking about this for over 10 years, and I have noticed uh, a lot of change. 
some of those very courses you're talking about are now using my book as a textbook. Um, so Wonderful. Uh, I was expecting a lot more resistance than I have, have gotten. Uh, but sure, there's still a lot of old school folks out there that it's also, it's also new. Uh, you know, a lot of people just haven't heard about the fact that, that our, our yards do need to participate in local ecosystems. And when people learn about this, it's my experience that they get excited about it. They realize their yard is actually a very powerful tool for conservation. That there's, here's an environmental challenge that they can take on themselves and see the difference. They actually get positive results, and that's, that's really motivating. They, there's so many people that, that get into this. Um, so the change is happening faster than I thought it would. It's certainly not complete at this point. Uh, we're really, but we're you have started that, a movement. Well, me and other people. I mean, there's, I'm not <laughs> the only one out there. Um, and we're not talking about we're not talking about destroying the old way. We're talking about adding to it. We're expanding what our yards do. Uh, so you don't have to miss the old ways. You can say, I'm going to even get more out of my yard than than I was in the past. Then you get, mm -hmm. you get that beautiful cecropia moth, you get the, the breeding chickadees and, and uh, all the other birds that we like in our, our yards. That's fun. It's really entertaining. Um, you know, the whole uh, last child in the woods movement, Richard Liu's movement to get our children right. exposed to nature. Right. We don't nature have to go to, disorder. to uh, Yeah, we don't have to go to a park to do this. Do it in our yards. That's the best way for kids. Uh, and so young parents are getting into this for exactly that reason, reconnecting with nature. We're also learning that there, there are measurable health benefits to doing this. When we spend a little bit of time in, a, in a, even a semi-natural landscape, our blood pressure drops, our stress hormone drops, it boosts our immune system, it, it restores our attention span. Really fascinating research that, that says, you know, we benefit from doing this. So lots of reasons that, that this cultural change may, may actually happen. Now, I believe that part of that cultural change drove your second book and the desire for your second book, which is The Living Landscape. And because so many of us are saying, yes, we want to do native plants, but how do we incorporate them into a plan, a beautiful landscaping plan, and you have co-authored a book with Rick Dark, The Living Landscape, which is available in a lot of bookstores, but also on Timber Press. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Right. Well, this was a collaboration. Rick actually approached me. Uh, Rick has a, a background in, in horticulture. He worked at Longwood Gardens for 20 years. Um, so he has, he has the design skills and the horticultural skills required uh, to do a good job with this, whereas my background's uh, ecology and entomology, and, and you know, I can see all these pieces that have to come together, but I would never offer myself as a landscape designer. <laughs> so this this marriage uh, created the book, and it's filled with you know dozens and dozens of, of rich, beautiful landscape images to show you what a a um, Largely, there's a book of compromise. It's not 100% native, but what a largely native landscape can look like, how you achieve what we call uh, landscape layers, 
a lot of our landscapes today are two-dimensional, where we, you know, we have length and width, but we don't have height. Or if we do, if we have canopy trees in our yard, there's nothing from the canopy right down to the ground. It's all bare. Well, that's not, that's not the way plants grow. So how do you get layers of, of uh, productive plants in your yard from the, the ground layer to the shrub layer to the understory layer right into the canopy? And how do you do that tastefully? That's, that was hmm. the goal of that book, and um, certainly a lot of, of uh, a lot of pictures showing you how you can actually do that. Yeah, and it's chock full of lovely, beautiful examples of how you can take native plants and create gorgeous landscapes, lots of little vistas, and what Luttrell Briggs did years ago by introducing us to the little gardening rooms in your garden, little right. areas where you can sit and enjoy and be exactly. surrounded by lovely things, like right. birds can, and butterflies. You can create a little private space in your yard so that you, you know, you're not on public view from your neighbor or anybody else, all by using plants as Rick calls it organic architecture. You're, you're, you've created the room, the walls of your room. You can have those private experiences right, right in your yard. A lot of people think if you use native plants, it can't, you can't have a formal design. Uh, that's not true. A, a, the formality of a design depends on the design, not on the plants that are in that design. So you can design formally and use native plants. People in Europe use North American plants in formal gardens all the time. Of course, they're not native plants in Europe, so it works for them. But it just shows our plants can be just as formal as any other plant. Um, if you put them in a formal design. So in other words, so, native, we'll native gardens don't have to be wild and messy. <laughs> right. Although that can be fun as well. Sure. And we'll be talking about the layering effect in a future podcast. So I want to ask you, you are going to be presenting a wonderful talk on April 28th at Riverbanks Botanical Garden for the Garden Club of South Carolina. And the title of the talk is called The Chickadee's Guide to Gardening. Without giving us the whole talk, can you give me a little snippet, a little preview of what our Garden Club people will be hearing that day? Well, the, you know, the, the, the approach from this talk uh, kind of flips what I've done in the past, I've talked about how we need to change our landscapes to, the, to our own benefit, you know, what we need to get out of our landscapes. This is going to look at our landscapes from the perspective of the animals that, that need to share those spaces. So I call it a chickadee's guide to gardening. What does a chickadee need to make it through the year in our, our yards? But I don't just talk about chickadees. I talk about other birds. I do focus on birds because, first of all, we like them. And if we create landscapes that are bird friendly, we have also created landscapes that are friendly to lots of other types of, of uh, animals. So you mm -hmm. can't have a bird friendly landscape without helping all those caterpillars. And you can't help those caterpillars without having the diversity of plants that support them. Uh, but we kind of move through the seasons and see what it takes to have a, a productive living landscape from the perspective of the things that, that need those uh, all those those resources in our, our yards. You know, very simple things, but things that a lot of people haven't thought of. So, for example, in the fall, 
chickadees go to our feeder. What they, you know, they become seed eaters in the winter. Uh, and they evolved in a habitat where there's a great production of seeds in the fall, but then, then there aren't any more seeds. So the chickadees have to take the seeds and store them so they can use them all winter long. So they go to our feeder. If you watch them, they're not eating the seeds at your feeders. They take one and they fly off with it. Well, where are they going with it? What are they doing with it? They're hiding it. They're caching it. And they've got to have nooks and crannies to do that. And then they have to remember where they did that. How do they remember where they hid all these things? How do they keep the blue jay from watching them and stealing all of those seeds? All of this is happening yeah. right in, in your yard. And those are the, those are the things that, that we'll talk about. Well, that sounds like a very fun and exciting talk. And I, for one, am very excited since I have chickadees nesting in my yard right now to hear all about a year-round guide to helping them proliferate. Well, Doug, you have been amazingly educational today. And I just want to remind those who are listening that they can pick up your book at many bookstores, but also both Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants, and the new book co-authored with Rick Dark, The Living Landscape, are both available on Timber Press, T-I-M-B-E-R-P-R-E-S-S dot com. I want to thank you for joining us today, Doug, and I want to invite our listeners to please register for our Garden Club State Meeting where you will hear Doug and Jeff Beecham talk about going native in South Carolina gardens. The event is April 28th at Riverbanks Botanical Garden, where we will also be dedicating our new native plant garden in the new children's interactive space at Riverbanks that just opened. Again, gcscatemeeting.com is where you can register. Thank you again, Doug. You're welcome. All right, and we will see you on the 28th. Yeah, looking forward to it.